It is time for man to fix his goal. It is time for man to plant the seed of his highest hope. His soil is still rich enough for it. But this soil will one day be poor and weak. No longer will a high tree be able to grow from it. I tell you, one must have chaos in one to give birth to a dancing star. I tell you, you still have chaos in you. These are the words of German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche from his seminal work Thus Spoke Zarathustra, an ethereal piece of writing about humanity's greatest dreams and aspirations, as well as the forces of destruction and creation. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. In our earlier three-part podcast on the space race, Into the Great Wide Open, we looked at the brilliant rocket engineers who crafted the first machines which sent human beings into the cosmic ocean of outer space. Werner von Braun, working in the United States, and Sergei Pavlovich Korolyov, working secretly in the Soviet Union. These dedicated men earned their place in history by leading humanity into the space age. But there were other pioneers of science and engineering that came before them. And interestingly enough, those men also lived in the United States and Russia. These brilliant men paved humanity's path to the stars. They fixed an ambitious goal and planted the seed of our highest hope. The pioneer of modern physics, Isaac Newton, once said, quote, If I have seen further than others, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. This is indeed a fitting analogy for today's episode, but Newton was not the first to coin this phrase. In fact, it likely originated in medieval Europe with a French philosopher named Bernard of Chartres. He saw the ancient Greeks and Romans as intellectual mentors from an era gone by. Another philosopher wrote about him in the year 1159 CE, saying, quote, Bernard used to compare us to dwarves perched on the shoulders of giants. He pointed out that we see more and farther than our predecessors, not because we have keener vision or greater height, but because we are lifted up and borne aloft on their gigantic stature. Indeed, even engineers like Korolyov and von Braun were merely standing on the shoulders of giants. Today, we invite you to come on another journey through history to meet a few of those giants, brilliant minds who appeared to have the literal power of clairvoyance, to look beyond the age in which they lived, to glimpse the future, and to behold the coming age of space. Curious students of human history might well be inclined to ask precisely when the Space Age actually began. This is a question with many possible answers. Perhaps the simplest and most decisive answer is that it began in October of 1957, when a Soviet rocket scientist named Korolyov placed a metal sphere with two radio transmitters inside it atop a liquid-fueled R-7 rocket. 
then launched it into outer space. The world's first artificial satellite, dubbed Sputnik, hurtled around the world once every hour and a half, and human beings all around the planet could listen to its signal in the weeks that followed. We might say that Korolyov was the father of the space age, but who might we say is the grandfather of the space age? The idea of launching machines or even humans into outer space was not the brainchild of Korolyov. Humans had speculated about it for quite some time, even before Sputnik. Korolyov himself found a great deal of inspiration from his Russian ancestors, who lived several decades before him. They believed in a strange ideology known as cosmism. While cosmism isn't widely known in the West today, at least one American author, George M. Young, wrote extensively about it in his book, The Russian Cosmists. The founder of cosmism was a man named Nikolai Fyodorovich Fyodorov. Fyodorov began his adult life as a teacher, and in the year 1878, he found work as a librarian at a prominent museum and archive in Moscow. He was a devout follower of Russian Orthodox Christianity, and while his religious beliefs undoubtedly influenced the ideology he created, it isn't really fair to describe Russian cosmism as a sect of Christianity. Fyodorov believed that humanity desperately needed to undergo a paradigm shift in our views of the universe itself. Long ago, Ptolemy had believed that all the planets and the sun were in orbit around an unmoving Earth, and that dogma had been accepted for centuries. In this worldview, the cosmos was a heavenly realm separate from the chaotic Earth. Then, in the 1500s, a priest named Copernicus had made the profound assertion that all the planets, including the Earth, were really in orbit around the sun. Galileo had confirmed it. Copernicus was correct, of course, but had humanity really internalized this relatively new conception of our place in the universe? Fyodorov believed that the human race was still living with the Ptolemaic worldview where we were at the center of the universe, a place where the chaotic world was firm and unmoving, and the cosmos was a supernatural realm beyond our grasp. He felt that the more humanity embraced this Ptolemaic worldview, the more we would be prisoners to it. The planet Earth, which we were confined to, had plenty of problems. War, famine, starvation, and death, just to name a few. Nature might have been our temporary enemy, but with the aid of future science and technology, he believed we could make it our eternal friend. In the mind of Fyodorov, once humanity had the right technological and spiritual tools, humanity could break free of the Ptolemaic worldview, travel into outer space, and begin the exploration and colonization of the solar system. It wasn't merely something that humanity could do in the near future, but something humanity must do. Fyodorov believed that life, in some form, was present throughout the universe. His religion of Christianity prophesied a day when Christ would return and the dead would rise from the grave. But in the mind of Fyodorov, the resurrection of the dead was not an event that would take place through God's divine intervention, 
but rather through humanity's future embrace of science, engineering, and technology, as well as spirituality. He said that the resurrection of the dead was a common task that the entire human race could unite behind. He believed that scattered throughout the universe were the particles of humanity's deceased ancestors, the remnants of human souls drifting in the cosmic void. In the eyes of Fyodorov, achieving space travel was vital to achieving two goals. The first was to travel into the universe to collect these ancestral particles, what Fyodorov called the dust of our fathers, to reanimate these particles and resurrect the dead. He knew that the medical science to achieve such a feat did not yet exist, but someday it would. Someday, every human being that had ever lived could be brought back to life again. Once this first goal was achieved, the resurrected forefathers of humanity could have ample living space, settling on a myriad of worlds in the solar system and beyond. Historian George Young described Fyodorov as the ultimate alchemist, endeavoring to use both science and religion as tools for humanity to transform itself into an immortal and transcendent species, and eventually into a godlike cosmic consciousness that would inhabit the entire universe. For as strange as the philosophy of cosmism was, it had many prominent followers. One of them, a man named Florensky, authored prominent papers in mathematics and helped incorporate the newly harnessed power of electricity into Russian industry during the Industrial Revolution. Fyodorov published no writings in his lifetime, as he believed that ideas shouldn't ever be used as property. Well after his death, one of his seminal works entitled The Philosophy of the Common Task was released. One of the most famous Russian authors of all time, Leo Tolstoy, knew Fyodorov personally. While the two men didn't always agree with each other, Tolstoy said that he was proud to have lived in the same century as Fyodorov. But there was one Russian cosmist who would prove to be Fyodorov's greatest protege, Konstantin Eduardovich Tsiolkovsky. Born in the Russian Empire in 1857, as a young child, Tsiolkovsky became severely ill with scarlet fever, which rendered him nearly deaf. Not only was he unable to continue attending school, but his handicap made it difficult for him to communicate with other children, leaving him socially isolated. Retreating into his mind, Tsiolkovsky read a seemingly endless number of books, both fiction and non-fiction alike. There was one particular book, though, that captivated the young man's imagination. The 1865 novel, From the Earth to the Moon, by Jules Verne. In the novel, a group of American weapons enthusiasts build a massive cannon to launch a hollow projectile with three men inside to escape the Earth's gravity and travel to the moon. Tsiolkovsky was self-educated, teaching himself about a variety of topics in both science and engineering. But for the rest of his life, the dream of spaceflight was never far from his mind. Perhaps by chance, perhaps by fate, Tsiolkovsky eventually sought to continue educating himself at a massive library in Moscow. 
It was there that he met a brilliant librarian named Fyodorov. Fyodorov acted as both mentor and tutor to the young Tsiolkovsky, giving him a seemingly endless supply of book recommendations by different authors. It was the equivalent of Tsiolkovsky's own personal, university-style education. After three years of spending nearly every waking hour at this library, Tsiolkovsky's father worried that he was becoming obsessed and chided his son, telling him that he would soon need to find gainful employment to support himself. And so, Tsiolkovsky returned home and took an exam that certified him to become a schoolteacher. Tsiolkovsky lived out the rest of his life in a log cabin over a hundred miles, or 200 kilometers from Moscow. Even though airplanes did not yet exist, Tsiolkovsky had a fascination with the idea of powered flight and built the first wind tunnel ever constructed in Russia, which he used to test the aerodynamic qualities of various different objects. In 1892, he wrote an article where he proposed the creation of a large airship, which he called a metallic balloon. Today, we would call it a blimp. He even constructed a model of the ship, but he could never secure funding for such an engineering project. Another article he wrote contained drawings and diagrams of what Tsiolkovsky called a bird-like flying machine. Today, we would call it an airplane. And it was remarkably similar to the aircraft that would be constructed many years later. Achievement, the one that would eventually immortalize him in the annals of science and engineering, would emerge from his childhood fascination with space travel. The achievement came in 1903, when he published a work entitled The Exploration of Cosmic Space by Means of Reaction Devices. The reaction device, he described, was a modern rocket. Rockets had been invented by the ancient Chinese centuries earlier. Saltpeter, sulfur, and charcoal all comprised a mixture that today we know as gunpowder. When stuffed into a bamboo tube with a fuse at the bottom, they could be launched into the air. Such tiny rockets were used as weapons during war and as fireworks for celebrations. But Tsiolkovsky thought that those solid-fueled gunpowder rockets would not be effective enough to launch machines or human beings outside the Earth's atmosphere. His writing described something different, a more advanced, theoretical, liquid-fueled rocket. His published work suggested using liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen rather than gunpowder. He formulated a mathematical equation for how such a rocket would perform. Newton's three laws of motion were fundamental in physics, but Newton's second law would not be sufficient because both the weight and mass of a liquid-fueled rocket would constantly be changing as it expelled fuel out of its back. Today, we call Tsiolkovsky's equation the rocket equation, and it is the fundamental foundation of humanity's knowledge of spaceflight. It was a clear demonstration that human spaceflight was scientifically possible. Tsiolkovsky even stated that a rocket train would need to be constructed by stacking multiple rockets on top of each other, this, too, proved prophetic, since the rockets that carried the first astronauts into space often had multiple stages. He calculated that the minimum speed required to send a spacecraft into orbit around the Earth 
was 8,000 meters per second, or 5 miles per second. Tsiolkovsky's work received very little attention or accolades. His mentor Fyodorov died that same year. But Fyodorov's dream of colonizing the solar system was now immeasurably more plausible thanks to the brilliant work of his protege. It was just a matter of time before someone built a rocket capable of making it a reality. Tsiolkovsky pressed on, writing and publishing additional works on space travel. In 1911, he published again, this time formulating an equation for escape velocity, the speed at which a spacecraft must travel to break free of the pull of the Earth's gravity entirely, to travel to the moon or the planets beyond. For some reason, this publication made a far greater impact in the scientific world and his colleagues praised him. When armed political revolution broke out in Russia and the monarchy was abolished, Tsiolkovsky was elected as a member of the Socialist Academy. In 1921, he received a lifetime pension. Tsiolkovsky's work, as well as his philosophy of cosmism, became revered in the newly formed Soviet Union. They were symbols of the grand utopia that communism promised. A precocious young Soviet man named Sergei Korolyov studied Tsiolkovsky's work eagerly and eventually became the head of the Soviet space program. Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite, would orbit the Earth a mere 22 years after Tsiolkovsky's death. At roughly the same time that Tsiolkovsky had been formulating his rocket equation, on the other side of the world in the United States of America, there was a young boy who was destined to create the very machines that could make Tsiolkovsky's theoretical ideas into a reality. That boy's name was Robert Hutchings Goddard. Born in a middle-class family in Massachusetts, his father worked in a machine shop, and the young Goddard had a fascination with all things mechanical. His young mind was also captivated by science when his father showed him how to generate static electricity by shuffling his feet on a carpeted floor. The night sky outside Goddard's home was a rich tapestry of thousands of stars and planets. In particular, the faint, glowing red orb of the planet Mars was visible. Goddard's father purchased him a telescope, which the boy used regularly. But much like Tsiolkovsky, it took a brilliant work of science fiction to ignite the young Goddard's imagination. In Goddard's case, it was The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, the story of a brutal invasion of technologically advanced creatures from Mars. One day, on a crisp autumn afternoon, an adolescent Goddard climbed up a large cherry tree behind the family barn to trim some dead limbs. But on that seemingly ordinary day atop that cherry tree, something happened. The seed of a glorious idea took root in Goddard's brain. Goddard would later say, quote, As I looked toward the fields of the East, I imagined how wonderful it would be to make some device which had, 
even the possibility of ascending to Mars, and how it would look on a small scale if I sent up from the meadow at my feet. I was a different boy when I descended from that tree than when I ascended. Existence, at last, seemed purposeful. The idea would determine the course of Goddard's life, and every year he would celebrate October 19th as his anniversary day, the day that changed him as a person, the day when he planted the seed of his highest hope. Goddard went on to attend Clark University in the town of Worcester, Massachusetts. He would earn a Ph.D. in physics, and after completing his education, he became a university professor. Like Tsiolkovsky before him, Goddard struggled with health problems even at a young age. A bout of tuberculosis proved particularly serious, leaving him so weak and frail he was confined to his bed. Doctors did not expect him to live, but he eventually recovered and pressed on. Like Tsiolkovsky, Goddard knew that a mathematical equation would need to be formulated to deal with the physics of rocket flight, and he knew that liquid-fueled rockets would be needed rather than solid-fueled ones. Of course, at the time, no one had ever constructed a liquid-fueled rocket before. Since Tsiolkovsky's work was not widely available outside of Russia, it is very likely that Goddard and Tsiolkovsky came up with many of the same ideas independently of one another. Perhaps it is indeed true that great minds think alike, or in the words of French poet Victor Hugo, Nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. One thing is certain. At this time in history, from east to west, dreams of spaceflight were considered little more than mere fantasy. Goddard said, quote, In no case must we allow ourselves to be deterred from the achievement of space travel, test by test, step by step, until one day we succeed, cost what it may. In 1914, Goddard was awarded the first patent for a liquid-fueled rocket by the United States government. He described a rocket that used liquid nitrous oxide and gasoline mixed together. He knew that it was this tool that would be essential for humanity to reach outer space. In a letter to the Smithsonian Institution, Goddard wrote that more advanced rockets could one day be used to send small robotic craft into outer space that these small craft could harness the power of the sun for electrical energy, and that they could take photographs of the moon and the planets, which could later be returned to Earth. Spacecraft returning to Earth's atmosphere would encounter tremendous heat and stresses, so he proposed that they use a shield of solid material, some of which would be eroded away by the heat of re-entry. Goddard's writing was describing space probes, interplanetary travel, solar panels, and ablative heat shields, all nearly half a century before they would become a reality. News of Goddard's writings soon appeared on the front page of the New York Times, and one day later, there was an editorial on his work. The editorial didn't merely criticize Goddard's ideas. It openly mocked him. The piece claimed that it would be impossible for a rocket to ever fly in outer space, let alone to the moon or anywhere else, that rockets had to push against the air, and without any air to push against, a rocket could go nowhere. The piece stated that those 
facts should be clear to anyone with a basic high school education. Even Goddard's colleagues at Clark University didn't consider rocket science to be a real science. Goddard's own writings had clearly explained that it was Newton's third law of motion that allowed for rocket flight in outer space. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Rockets push fuel out, and the fuel pushes the rocket forward. It was a simple enough concept for physics, but it was not understood by most laymen in the year 1920. In response to the insulting editorial, Goddard simply said, quote, Every vision is a joke until the first man accomplishes it. So Goddard set to work to accomplish it. The Smithsonian had given him a grant of a few thousand dollars. Unlike Tsiolkovsky, Goddard didn't merely want to write about rockets. He was determined to build them. He had done his share of experiments with solid-fueled rockets, but he was still convinced that liquid-fueled rockets were the future, as they would provide the continuous thrust needed to reach even greater altitudes. He designed a cylindrical combustion chamber that would mix liquid oxygen and gasoline to create a controlled explosion. Oxygen in its liquid form is extremely cold, and Goddard knew he could use that fact to his advantage. He placed the pipes containing the frigid liquid oxygen around the outside of the combustion chamber to cool down the chamber as the temperature built up inside. In 1923, he successfully test-fired this rocket engine. Finally, in 1926, he planned a launch at his Aunt Effie's farm in Auburn, Massachusetts. His wife and loyal assistant stood by his side, ready to capture the launch on film. The two chemical fuels shot into the combustion chamber and ignited. The tiny machine soared just 41 feet, or about 12 meters into the air. But it proved that this new rocket technology was indeed feasible, and it opened the door for Goddard to build bigger and better rockets. Perhaps it even opened the door to the space age itself. It was the first flight of a liquid-fueled rocket in human history. Sadly, his wife's film camera had missed the takeoff. The primitive camera had to be wound up every few seconds in order for it to capture moving pictures. Overall, though, the test was a huge success. Shortly thereafter, news of Goddard's rocket tests again ended up in the newspaper. And one article in particular caught the attention of none other than the famous pilot and inventor Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh had recently immortalized himself in the annals of history when he completed the first solo, non-stop flight across the Atlantic Ocean. Everyone knew that airplanes were the future, but Lindbergh wondered if perhaps rocket technology also might become more advanced in the coming decades. He quickly sought out Goddard. After a meeting in Goddard's office at Clark University, Goddard was convinced that Lindbergh shared his dreams of space travel, and the two men talked endlessly about his rocketry experiments. Now a friend and strong advocate for Goddard, Lindbergh used his celebrity status to make several proposals to different private corporations in the hopes that they might fund Goddard's research. But no one expressed any interest. Only a year earlier, the stock market had seen a massive crash, 
and an economic depression was looming over the United States. Rocket experiments seemed like a risky investment that might never pay off. Many in the United States still regarded Goddard as eccentric or even crazy. Ultimately, though, Lindbergh did manage to secure funding for Goddard's experiments from a wealthy philanthropist named Daniel Guggenheim, who agreed to give Goddard $100,000 to fund his research over the course of four years. In today's money, it would be the equivalent of receiving nearly $2 million. It was a godsend. Goddard would no longer have to teach as a professor to support his work. Goddard and his wife pulled out a map of the United States and looked for a suitable launch site for their future rocketry experiments. One of their recent rocket launches in New England had started a small fire, so they wanted to find a site with wide open spaces, clear skies, and good weather. They found it outside of the small town of Roswell, New Mexico, in the American Southwest. Ironically, many today associate this town with outer space, not because of Robert H. Goddard, but because of a supposed UFO crash in the late 1940s. Goddard and a small, intimate team began constructing larger and more advanced rockets. Fearful of anyone stealing his revolutionary new ideas, Goddard made his small team sign agreements that they would not divulge any aspects of his work to the general public. In 1935, one of the rockets reached a record altitude of 4,800 feet, or 1,460 meters. Goddard had built a gyroscopic stabilizer to ensure that if one of his rockets veered off course, the stabilizer would be able to correct its path. His research was progressing at an impressive rate, but there were always setbacks. A liquid-fueled rocket is essentially a controlled explosion, and if the explosion cannot be contained and controlled, it will blow up. Even billionaire Elon Musk's SpaceX rockets today have seen their share of catastrophic failures. And those rockets, advanced as they are, still rely on the basic technology created by the pioneering intellect of Robert H. Goddard. Goddard witnessed many disastrous explosions before later finding success. His wife Esther recalled one such failure in the following words. I have one picture of him where he is looking at a piece of the apparatus and scowling. You can just see the words, what is the matter? So this was a steady, steady thought, day after day after day. This is perhaps what you call genius, but genius must then be just plain capacity for hard work. The hard work paid off. In 1937, they launched a rocket that made it to an altitude nearly twice as high as their 1935 launch, over 8,000 feet into the atmosphere, or 2,500 meters. In all, Goddard would eventually secure 26 rocket patents. In 1940, Goddard's wife Esther went to a meeting with the United States military in Washington, D.C., explaining the success of their research and suggesting that rockets could potentially be used as weapons. Military leaders said they had no interest. Yet halfway around the world in Nazi Germany, a rocket scientist named Hermann Oberth was intensely fascinated by rocket technology 
and very much interested in Goddard's experiments. The German government was far more enthusiastic about funding rocket development than the American government. The Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, had banned Germany from developing any heavy artillery, but it didn't say anything about developing rockets. It was a loophole that Germany was determined to exploit. To help with his research, Oberth had taken a precocious young man under his wing. That man's name was Werner von Braun. With the full financial backing of the Nazi Empire, the rockets that these men created would later traverse hundreds of miles and kill thousands in neighboring England. When the United States entered World War II, Goddard offered his help to create an innovative new weapon for the U.S. military. In particular, he aided in the creation of the bazooka, a long tube that launched a small rocket. It proved instrumental in blowing up enemy tanks. In 1945, as World War II began to draw to a close, the United States government shipped German V-2 rockets that they had recovered back to the United States, where Goddard was able to inspect one of them. Looks like one of ours, his assistant said. It would appear so, Goddard responded. Three main components that Goddard had invented appeared on the V-2 rocket. Turbo pumps used for injecting fuel, gyroscope stabilizers, and a line that fed excess alcohol into the walls of the combustion chamber. Had German spies stolen Goddard's work? Goddard certainly believed so. But ultimately, we may never know the truth. What we do know is that after Germany's defeat in World War II, a search team and rocket scientist, Werner von Braun's old office, found a German translation of one of Tsiolkovsky's books on rocketry, with von Braun's handwritten notes on nearly every page. When von Braun surrendered to the American military near the end of World War II, U.S. intelligence officials quickly began interrogating him about his work. Von Braun was shocked that they would be so interested in his work. Had they not heard of their own Robert H. Goddard? According to Von Braun, Goddard's experiments in liquid-fueled rockets had saved his team years of work. Goddard, who had been in poor health all of his life due to his battle with tuberculosis, died just as World War II was coming to a close. He never lived to see his dreams become a reality. But the rest, as they say, is history. Goddard's widow Esther did live to see human beings walk on the moon in 1969, just a half century after the New York Times had openly mocked Goddard for stating that it was possible. Just one day after the mighty, liquid-fueled Saturn V rocket launched, for Earth's neighbor in space, the New York Times printed a summary of their 1920 editorial and offered a correction stating that in fact, a rocket can travel in the vacuum of space. At the end, it said, quote, The Times regrets this error. What would Goddard have thought of such an immense achievement? His widow Esther put it quite simply. This was his dream, sending a rocket to the moon. He would have just glowed. In 1904, Goddard himself said, quote, It has often proved true that the dream of yesterday 
is the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow. In the 21st century, Fyodorov's philosophy of Russian cosmism seems far less bizarre than it did in the 19th century. Billionaire Elon Musk has stated his ambition to place a city of one million people on Mars by 2050. Inventor and futurist Ray Kurzweil has made the bold prediction that within our lifetimes, human beings might conquer death itself, aided by tiny computers the size of human blood cells. Kurzweil claims that this might happen as soon as the year 2030. Of course, there is no way to know for sure whether these predictions will come to fruition, but Fyodorov would likely be pleased at the technological progress that humanity has made. The dream lives on. But Fyodorov believed that technology needed to work in tandem with spirituality. He said, quote, Intelligence without feeling becomes the knowledge of evil without any desire to root it out. Does humanity have the determination, both morally and spiritually, to make our dreams a reality? Only time will tell. In Dr. Robert Zubrin's newest book, The Case for Space, he points out the fact that genetic material within bacteria contained between 130 kilobytes and 14 megabytes of information. In recent laboratory experiments, scientists have demonstrated that it is possible to encode entire books within the DNA of common bacteria. Solar sails are spacecraft propulsion systems made of thin reflective foils that are literally pushed by light itself. Dr. Zubrin states, quite correctly, that bacteria are also quite small and quite thin, and could be pushed through space in much the same way. An extremely thin layer of soot could be added to shield them from radiation. Within the bacteria, any elaborate message of humanity's choice could be encoded. Fyodorov believed that the souls of our dead ancestors inhabited the cosmos, and that we had to collect their ancestral dust. Rather than collecting the dust of our fathers, Dr. Zubrin believes we should set it free. The ideas and histories of a thousand generations could be dispersed throughout the Milky Way galaxy. Perhaps someone else, somewhere out there, will take on the task of bringing those ideas back to life. We will close today with the words of Goddard's widow, Esther, reflecting on her own personal philosophy of space travel. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He has to have something spiritual. And if he takes time, some night, to just look at the firmament and see the stars and the planets there, surely there must be some stirrings there that he'd like to know what is there. What is the meaning of this? What is her role in all this? <laughs>